Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for September 23rd through the 29th. And today we'll be discussing the book of Galatians. By way of update in Hong Kong, uh, just so you know, I failed to to give one last week. We did endure our 16th weekend of uh, consecutive protests as uh, those who are uh, upset with the government continue to express their frustration uh, every weekend. It's almost bizarre. It's every Monday through Friday. It's kind of business as normal. And then on weekends, uh, they they get together and protest and uh, break things and graffiti and light fires and get arrested. It's uh, it's kind of kind of surreal. We did fortunately have the full two hours of week uh, last week, but uh, as Sunday school president, I've been frustrated in that it seems like the most violent protests happen every other week, and those happen to be on Sunday school week. So we've gone three weeks in a row uh, with or three Sunday school weeks in a row. Uh, without having any Sunday school. So, uh, again, we're hopeful that things will uh, start to calm down, um, but uh, it's still very unclear how this uh, situation will eventually resolve. So, again, I love Hong Kong and pray and ask that you uh, keep Hong Kong if you're in your prayers, if you wouldn't mind, that, uh, that, that things will be resolved and in a way that will allow uh, certainly the, us to enjoy the freedoms that we currently enjoy in Hong Kong, but also that those freedoms might um, spread into further into China, that our brothers and sisters there might uh, enjoy uh, the freedoms that, that we take, often take for granted, especially those of religious freedom and the opportunity to, to hear the gospel and to accept it and, and to exercise uh, their, their religious beliefs. Well, again, today we'll be studying the, uh, the book of Galatians. Um, and uh, so this is Paul's letter to a group of saints in, in, in a region called Galatia, which is where modern-day Turkey is located. Um, and the saints here were likely those living in uh, a, a group of small cities that Paul had traveled to with Barnabas on his first missionary journey, though it isn't clear if, he, if it was his first journey or maybe even his second or third uh, we're not completely sure when he had interactions with these saints originally, but uh, like all the others that Paul is writing to, these are a group of saints that are very near and dear to Paul, that, that he himself had found and established the church there. And, and so their uh, tendency to stray is something that truly bothers Paul and upsets him. And so he writes these epistles by, by means of a correction and trying to get them back on the straight and narrow where Paul believes they should be. Uh, most scholars believe that this epistle was written during his third mission, though it's, it's possible that it was actually written several years before then. His third mission would have been in the, in the later 50s AD, but it's possible that it was actually written before the Jerusalem conference, which took place in 49 AD. So this could be one of Paul's 
uh, earliest, if not his, his most early letter. And the evidence for that is some of the things that uh, we'll talk about in chapter 2, mostly his, his interactions or his frustrations uh, with Peter and the way that Peter interacted with some of the saints um, that, that we'll be discussing in a bit. So uh, these saints living in Galatia all were, were Gentiles, apparently, or at least the large majority of them were. And uh, so not surprisingly, we, we've seen in chapters before that one of Paul's uh, biggest doctrinal concerns is the Judaizers within the church. Those that are con- trying to convince the Gentile converts that before they can fully accept Christ, they first have to accept the law of Moses and, and Judaism. And Paul spends, really that's the main theme of his epistle to the Galatians, is that no, you don't. You go directly from wherever you're at to Jesus Christ. You don't have to pass through uh, Judaism. And so Paul spends a lot of time uh, in this letter uh, discussing those concepts and fighting against those that, um, that do not fully embrace this doctrine, uh, including the chief apostle, uh, Peter. Uh, Paul expresses some frustration with him, as we'll see in a bit. Um, so th- this epistle actually starts off right away with Paul being frustrated. Uh, usually we've seen in a lot of his epistles, he'll start off with um, a testimony, some salutations, some, uh, you know, some pats on the head, telling everyone that they're doing a good job. Uh, but in, in this epistle, he starts off right away in verses uh, 6 through 8, uh, letting the Galatian saints know that, that they're not doing what he thinks they're supposed to be doing. Verses 6 through 8. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So these saints have obviously... In, uh, accepted doctrines that, that Paul is not happy with. And, and the doctrines that they've accepted are, are these ideas that you first have to be uh, converted to Judaism before you can accept fully uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and verse 8 is actually surprisingly strong if you think about it. He says, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you. So he's even telling the saints here, if you have an angel from heaven come down and preach something contrary to what I have preached to you or what I am going to outline in these letters, you shouldn't believe it. So Paul is even putting himself and his teachings above angels from heaven, which is quite a strong statement if you think about it. Um, An angel, of course, is someone that, that is a messenger, so, so he's saying a messenger from heaven won't, if, he, if that messenger preaches something different when I'm preaching you, don't believe that messenger. Believe me. Uh, so a very, very strong statement from Paul. And why is this statement, statement so strong? Verses 11 and 12. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the reason Paul is able to make such a strong statement that you shouldn't even believe a messenger from heaven is because Paul is saying, the gospel that I gave you doesn't come from any angel. It comes from 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. My gospel is not focused on the messengers or focused on the angels. My message is focused on Jesus Christ. And because of that, you can trust it 100% in anything and anyone that teaches something contrary to this. You should not believe it, but your faith should be focused solely on Jesus Christ and his gospel and his message. And that's the message that I am delivering to you. Okay, now Paul here uh, starts to, uh, goes further in elaborating on the importance of the message and how these saints, uh, these Galatian saints, again, who were not Judaism, who were not uh, Jewish uh, by, by birth, how they should accept things, and, and talking about his own process as well. Uh, verses 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So I, I love the imagery here that Paul is referring to when he talks about uh, being separated from his mother's womb. And he's not talking about his actual birth here because Paul was born a Jew. And he was given some of the best Jewish training you could possibly get. And in his early life, he was a very zealous Jew. He was even going around destroying the Christian church. But God called him. He says, called me by his grace, separating me from my mother's womb. And so he's talking about not his actual literal birth, but he's talking about his spiritual birth, his rebirth. Uh, his, his baptism, if you will, as he, as he accepted Christ. And then it, it's interesting, I, I love the imagery, he, he refers to Judaism as being his mother's womb, this warm, safe environment, but yet it was incredibly confounding, not giving him any freedom to move or to expand or to grow. Uh, if, but, but in Paul's case, it was a place of protection and a place of safety. And we'll see he refers to the law of Moses, uh, as, a, as a schoolmaster or a guardian lately, is something given to protect uh, the Jews. But ultimately, it's something that also has to be left behind, just as a baby must leave its mother's womb if it's going to in any way come close to uh, approaching its full potential. So Paul here recognizes that he had to leave the womb of the law of Moses, the religion that he grew up with, he had to leave those things behind so that he could enjoy freedom, so that he could enjoy growth, and he could become all that he was supposed to be. And what was it that he was called to do? That he was called to preach among the heathen, among the heathen here meaning Gentile. He was called to preach the gospel among, the, did, among those that did not have even the blessings of the law of Moses. He was called to preach the gospel to them. And when, he was, and when he did so, he did not confer with flesh and blood. Again, the idea of flesh and blood being the, the mother's womb that he came from. <clears throat> as soon as he was called from Christ, or called to Christ from his mother's womb, from the law of Moses, he didn't go back to those within the law of Moses and say, hmm, what do you think? Is this a good idea? Is this a change I should make in my life? No, he went directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, embracing it wholeheartedly because 
He knew that it was true. He knew that was the path that God wanted him to choose. And he didn't have to confer with anyone on the earth in order to make that decision. And so that complete conversion that Paul himself went through from the religion of his mother, the religion of his family, from his mother's womb, as he calls it, that conversion uh, right away to fully embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ is what Paul himself went through, and that's what he's trying to convince the saints of Galatia that they need to have gone through. And once they have gone through that, they need to remain within that path, not retreat back to uh, the confines of the law of Moses or any other religion, but rather fully embracing and enjoying the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning of chapter 2 then, uh, Paul continues to recount his own conversion and that after he was converted and he became and he was established as a, a missionary and accepted by the other Christians and if you recall from Acts it took them a while to accept him but once it was accepted that he was in fact a convert and that he was ready to go out and serve Christ as a missionary <clears throat> it was agreed that he would be responsible for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and that he would be responsible for helping those that never had the law of Moses helping them come directly unto Christ. And of course, Paul was uniquely qualified to do this as a Roman citizen. He was very well educated, um, very familiar with the traditions uh, other than those of the law of Moses. And so he was able, because of that, to be a very powerful missionary. Um, but Paul recounts an instance in which uh, Peter came. So it, it appears as if Paul had been out preaching the gospel to the Gentiles as it was agreed that he would be responsible for teaching the gospel to the Gentiles while other of the apostles would stay in Jerusalem and build the church there uh, preaching the gospel to the Jews. But apparently at some point Peter came and there was an incident involving Peter that made Paul not too happy. Um, and this is uh, in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and I'm going to read from the Weymont, uh, Weymont translation here, because um, I think it's a little more clear what happened uh, in this translation. Uh, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is, is a name for Peter, I opposed him to his face because he was at fault. For before some people from Jacob came, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and recused himself, fearing those of the circumcision. And the remaining Jews were also caught up in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they did not act uprightly toward the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, If you are a Jew... And live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So apparently what had happened was there was a feast, and it must have been some type of a public feast, in which Paul, I apologize, in which Peter was originally eating with the Gentiles, whether that means he was actually sitting at their table, or whether it means he was actually he was eating their food. And remember it was Peter 
that received the great revelation that said, let no man call unclean what I, have, what I the Lord have called clean, um, referring to the end of the law of Moses, the end of requirements of, of kosher as we have it today, whereas uh, they, did not know, they were no longer bound Christians or not bound by the same dietary restrictions that the Jews were bound by. And so whether it meant Peter was actually eating with the, with the Gentiles or whether he was actually eating their food, we're not clear. Um, but apparently when other uh, Jewish converts to Christianity came, uh, those of the circumcision, uh, as, as they're called, Peter all of a sudden stopped eating either with the giant Gentiles or stopped eating their food. And this frustrated Paul because it sent a message that uh, it was still necessary to follow the law of Moses because Peter, whether he was trying to impress those or he was fearful of, uh, of, those, uh, uh, of, of the Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, the result was the same. The Gentiles saw this and they said, oh, oh other people came and Peter all of a sudden changed his behavior. Uh, and Paul calls this uh, blatant hypocrisy because Peter has received this revelation and as a result, Peter knows it's okay for a Christian like Peter to enjoy, uh, to, to no longer be bound by the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. But when other Jews came, he limited his actions to the law of Moses. And now it, it's, it's possible to think of what reasons why Peter would do this, uh, perhaps for just cultural reasons. He, he didn't want to make other people upset. He didn't, he was closest to those uh, cultural, uh, to, to the Jews culturally. Um, and so when they came, he was more comfortable uh, following uh, their prescriptions. But regardless, uh, Paul is very upset because of the uh, impact that it had upon the Gentile converts. It made them question whether or not it was okay for them to not follow the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses because of the actions of Peter. And of course, one can understand it also caused a lot of confusion. He says, well, Peter was eating with us and eating our food until others came and then all of a sudden he stopped. So which one is it? Is it okay to eat our food as long as there's no Jewish converts around? Or do we, is it never okay to eat our food? And Paul and Peter was just eating it in a moment of weakness. What's, what's going on here? So Paul was very upset um, about that instance, about uh, Peter's lack of consistency, his, his willingness to uh, change his actions because simply of the arrival of those that he was culturally closer to, and it's as if he chose the side of the Jewish converts rather than the Gentiles. And so this, uh, again, this Judaizing, this idea that even though we're Christians, we still follow the law of Moses, was very upsetting to Paul and to have Peter come and cause further confusion uh, really was something that very much upset Paul. And so we can see in the rest of this epistle to the Galatians, Paul goes to a lot of efforts to clarify that the law of Moses is something that we no longer need to follow. And I think it's worth considering as we read these things, uh, you know, I, I would imagine of those watching this video, there's not that many that have a Jewish background. But we all have our own unique 
backgrounds. We've all come from somewhere. Maybe your background is you grew up in a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you went to primary and did seminary and went on a mission, and you've been a member your whole life and never considered yourself anything other than a member of the church. And I, I certainly fall in that category. But regardless, whether we're, we're in that category or whether we come from some other different religious background or you come from no religious background and you've joined the church later, or even if you're considering joining the church, the fact is we all have our own backgrounds. We all have our own unique spiritual journeys that have led us to where we are today. And we'll see that Paul's discussion here is, is really a celebration of those different journeys, but at the same time being mature enough to, while being grateful for the journeys that we've gone on, also recognizing that those are no longer as important to us. What's more important than the journey that we've gone on is where we are going. And where we are going must be fully accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, accepting the grace that is made available to us only through Jesus Christ and his gospel, putting away whatever traditions uh, have, have come to us, either through our parents or through uh, our own experiences, putting those away and fully embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, uh, that discussion starts in verse 16. So he quickly turns from his frustration to Peter to this beautiful discourse uh, about the meaning of being a Christian and fully accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, and the law here is the law of Moses, uh, the, the religion of the Jews. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So we can see three times within this verse the word justified is used. And we discussed what justification means earlier uh, in our, one of our discussions on Romans. But I think a, a general idea is that the idea of justification does not mean that we're perfect, but rather we recognize that there's something not right or something not worthy. There's something that we do not deserve. But because of some supervening principle or force, that thing becomes acceptable. That weakness, that, that area that, that causes us to not be deserving is put aside and we become deserving. We become accepted. That's what justification means. We have our mistakes, but something supersedes, comes in and intervenes on our behalf. And because of that thing, not because of us, but because of that thing, the, the result of our mistakes no longer matter. That's how we become justified. And it's interesting to note here that Paul says that we are justified but by the faith of Jesus Christ that we are justified. Justified by the faith of Christ. And, and Wayman says there's, there's two ways that this could be translated. It could be we are justified by the faith of Christ. In other words, Christ was faithful. Christ did all things that he was supposed to do. And it is because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, we follow his example and we benefit that from the atonement 
that was made possible because of his righteousness, because of his faithfulness. Had he not been faithful, had he not been righteous, he would not have been in a position to provide salvation to us. So uh, we are very much justified by the faith of Jesus Christ because of his righteousness that made the atonement possible. Weyman says this could also be translated as we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So it is we are the ones that have to exercise faith, and our faith must be focused in Jesus Christ, in his message, in his gospel, recognizing that he is the only means of salvation. I don't think it matters. I, th- I think there's uh, beautiful lessons that can be drawn from both. Uh, the idea of having faith of, from, from the faith of Jesus Christ being the force that justifies us, that intervening force that comes in, or faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, either one, I think, uh, has beautiful uh, lessons and blessings for us. But again, the importance is that this we are justified not by the law of Moses, and that's what Peter, uh, uh, sorry, that's what Paul is emphasizing. It is not the law of Moses or any other religious tradition uh, that can justify us, that makes it possible for us to return to our Father and become like him. It is only faith in or faith of uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that makes that possible. Verses uh, 19 uh, and 20. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, accepting Christ requires us to uh, be crucified with Christ to be dead to the law, as, as, uh, as, as Paul says, dead to the law of Moses or dead to whatever our past, uh, has, our, our, our prior roads are, whatever our spiritual journey from the past is. Those, have been, those are an important part of who we are, but we're also dead to them. They no longer have relevance to us because we have crucified them and we are crucified with Christ, and we come again anew. And that's something that I don't think we always recognize the importance of that journey, of that transformation that has to take place. Um, Probably because it's something that happens very gradually, especially for those that grew up as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, But I think as a convert, and one thing I've always admired about converts is only they know that that great change that has to take place where you you make that decision that you are going to change and that you are going to fully embrace these things that you're going to fully embrace this new religion and with it comes a bunch of rules and commandments that you're going to do Uh, changes in the way that you use your time giving up your Sundays giving up more than your Sundays to fulfill callings, to study scriptures, to prayer, to, 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 to pray, to provide service, um, giving up traditions uh, that you often hold, hold sacred. That's, it's such an enormous change 
um, or it should be such an enormous change, as Paul says. And it, it, and of course, that change, that journey, is something that everyone has to go through, even those that grew up in the church. Uh, eventually, it has to change from just something that you do, something you do because your parents make you do it, because everyone around you is doing it, uh, because it's just what you're used to. You need to make that change. You need to crucify the old self and fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, uh, I love this imagery, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that Christ takes over our lives. That he lives in us. That we've given up our old self, given up our old traditions, given up our old ways of doing things. And Christ takes over our lives. And that's an enormous change, not something that comes easily. And regardless of whatever your traditional faith is, whether it be the tradition of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or some other tradition, there has to come some moment when you make that decision and then you stick to it. You let Christ take over you and everything about you. Okay, Paul, Paul continues then his discussion trying to persuade us, that, uh, pr- trying to persuade the Galatian saints and anyone who's listening that you don't need to follow the law of Moses anymore. <clears throat> um, and he does so uh, by bringing up the, the example of Abraham. And he uses Abraham several times in the next few chapters. Um, verses 6 through 9 in chapter 3. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So Abraham obviously lived before the law of Moses, but he is a figure that everyone within Judaism recognizes was righteous and is saved. Well, if Abraham, who lived before the law of Moses, was saved, then it must be the case that salvation is not within the law of Moses. He even goes so far as calling Abraham a heathen here uh, in verse 8 because he didn't have the law of Moses. He, he was in some ways the first Jew, but also not a Jew. Um, God's covenants came through the children of Israel, came through Abraham as they believe, but he did not grow up within that tradition. Therefore, since Abraham did not live by the law of Moses, obviously salvation, something that Abraham enjoyed, does not come by the law of Moses. Uh, Then uh, chapter 3, verses 19 uh, through 20. And for this... Uh, we are going to going to turn to the uh, the Joseph Smith uh, translation. Wherefore then the law was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made in the law given to Moses, who was ordained by the hand of angels to be a mediator of this first covenant, the law. Now this mediator was not a mediator of the new covenant, 
But there is one mediator of the new covenant, who is Christ, as it is written in the law concerning the promises made to Abraham and his seed. Now Christ is the mediator of life, for this is the promise which God made unto Abraham. So several things to emphasize here. One is that the law was given not because of righteousness, not because they were so good that the Lord blessed them with the law, but it was because of trans, uh, transgression that the law of Moses came. And it came through Moses, and he was the, medi- the mediator of this covenant, meaning the law of Moses. But the new covenant is mediated not by Moses, but by Christ himself. Uh, and that, and it is Christ as it is written in the law concerning the promises made to Abraham and his seed. So the promise made to Abraham was not that they would receive the law of Moses. That was given to them because they transgressed the covenant. The promise to them was not the law of Moses. The promise to them was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, Christ came through Abraham, blessing the entire world. And that was the promise that was given to Abraham, not the law of Moses. So we can see Paul is trying very hard to shift their attention from the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ in an effort to try to persuade them that they don't need the law of Moses. It's done away with. It is now the gospel of Jesus Christ that is your focus regardless of your religious background or history. Verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is famous verses whereas Paul refers to the law of Moses as their schoolmaster. Uh, The Wayman translation uses the concept of of a guardian. But again, it's this idea that your children under the law of Moses and it's been put in place to protect you, to help you, to lead you and to guide you and to prepare you for something greater that is to come. Now, once that greater thing comes, you no longer need the protection that you previously had because, because you've embraced fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you no longer need to be guided to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the whole point of the law, to lead you to Christ. So if you've already got there, why would you regress back to the thing that was designed to take you there? And I love the the imagery in, in verse 28, this idea that once we've come to Christ, As it says in verse 27, once we've been baptized unto Christ and put on Christ, once he lives within us, once he has taken over our lives, then whatever our historical background, whatever spiritual journey we have gone through to eventually come to Christ, no longer matters. It's no longer relevant how we got to Christ. The only question is, 
whether or not we are there. And once we are there, we no longer worry about what that background was, what that journey was, because we are all gathered together, Jew and Greek, bond and free, even male and female. It doesn't matter because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And I love this idea that we all are one in Christ. We've all come together focused on him because that conjures up in my mind this idea of the ultimate meaning of atonement, what atonement means, the idea of separated things being brought together as one. And we, as children of God, as we come unto Christ, we not only come unto Christ at one, but we come unto each other at one. As we are all gathered together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come together at one as a body of Christ as a group of brothers and sisters striving to keep the commandments of Christ, looking out for each other, supporting each other, a body of Christ working together to carry out the will of God on earth. What a, what a beautiful concept that is and how, how wonderful it is when that actually plays out, when we don't see each other's socioeconomic status or race or background our family situation where we just see each other as brothers and sisters, as fellow Christians, believers and followers of Christ, simply doing the best that we can, striving to love and support each other. And that's what the gospel is all about, and that is what the type of community that Paul is trying to build here among the Galatian saints. Don't worry about what your background is. It doesn't matter if you were historically a Jew or a Gentile, if you come from the from the pagan religions of the Romans, or whether or not you were under the law of Moses, it no longer matters because we have all come together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moving to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, these ideas continue. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So he's saying here that children are not free, whether or not you are a, a child of uh, a, a rich person or whether or not you're the child of a servant. It doesn't matter. You still do not have the same freedom that you look forward to as an adult. You still do not have the same uh, economic freedom, the freedom to make your own decisions and to choose your own path. As a child, you are still subject to the the tutelage and to the protection of others, of those around you, and you look to them to provide that protection, that safety. Even food and clothing, you don't take care of it yourself. As a child, you are solely dependent on others, and you do not yet have that freedom that you look forward to as an adult. But verses 3 through 7 then, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So even if we are born into the covenant, 
such as the Jews were, even if we were born into the family of the wealthy person. Once we, are accept, once we accept Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and become joint heirs with Christ. And so you can see he's almost, in some ways, almost making fun of the Jews here, saying that you guys think you're so wonderful, think that you're uh, born within this wealthy family rather than being born as children of the servants. He says, but in reality, none of us are. None of us are worthy heirs. There is only one person ever that has been a worthy heir, and that is Jesus Christ. The rest of us are unworthy. We do not deserve to inherit everything that the Father has. We are, like, we are all like servant children. None of us are as the children of the Lord, the children of he from whom we hope to inherit everything. None of us are worthy of that. And so we can see this idea of adoption, the idea that someone that is born outside of the family all of a sudden is brought into the family and becomes an heir, becomes entitled to all the benefits of the family. Adoption is a similitude of the justification that Paul was talking about earlier. It's a similitude of the atonement. This idea that we are not worthy to receive anything that the Father has. We've made these mistakes and we are unable of returning to the Father by ourselves. We are in the same situation as the child of a servant. We don't deserve anything. But because of the grace of God, because of Jesus Christ, who is the only one who is a worthy heir, who is worthy to be called a child of God, because of him and his atonement, because of the grace made available through the faith of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family. We are brought into the family. And though we don't deserve it, we become heirs. We become joint heirs with Christ. And when you think about it in that context, oh my goodness, how loving is Jesus Christ? How incredible is it what he has done for us? Can you imagine the only heir of, the, of a wealthy person going out and begging and pleading and making it possible for other people to come and partake of his inheritance, to be adopted into his family so that others might enjoy with him all the blessings that he enjoys? Wow. When you think of it in that context, Christ truly is unbelievable in his grace and in his mercy and in his love for us that he is willing to give up his position as the sole heir of all that God has to make it possible so that we who are unworthy who are like those born outside of the family, can be adopted into the family and enjoy all of the benefits that come from being a part of the family 
as if we had been born into it in the first place. Now, of course, that is a similitude. We are born into the family. Christ is our older brother, and God is our father. But this idea of adoption here helps us to better put into context just what it is that Christ has done for us and how merciful and how full of grace he truly is in providing salvation for us. Then verse 9, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So Paul asked them, Once you've been brought into this family, once you've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, once you have become a joint heir with Christ of all that the Father has, how is it possible that you would leave that behind? That you would return to your previous ways or digress to a lesser law? That you, someone who has inherited everything from God the Father, how is it that you would go back on the street and beg How is it someone that has been adopted by someone as wonderful and as powerful and who has everything as God does, once we've been brought into that family with all the promises that we have, how is it that you would go back and and beg for the scraps of the world? How is it that you would regress and give up these great incredible blessings and promises that have been made to you in order to pursue the meager and pathetic things of the world. And that's the question that Paul is asking in verse 9, and certainly something that we should think of ourselves, knowing the blessings that we have that have been made available to us through the atonement of Jesus Christ as we become the sons and daughters of God, as we are adopted into his family with the promise of inheriting all that the Father has, even eternal life, how is it that we could ever look to the world for our source of happiness, for our salvation? How is it that we could look anywhere other than to Jesus Christ in order to be saved? How is it that we could ever put our faith and put our trust in something other than Jesus Christ and other than Heavenly Father as the focus of our lives? How could we let anything take priority and take precedent over them over their love for us. No, we need to let Christ take over our lives, as Paul tells us to do. Let him live in us. And then once we've done that, there's no way that we could possibly go back to what we used to be, whether that be the law of Moses, whether that be a member who just very casually attends church once a week and doesn't think about it the rest of their time, whether that be someone from any other religious tradition, once you fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could you ever consider going back and begging for this scraps of the world, as Paul says it? Paul ends chapter 4 with with an analogy to going back to Abraham, comparing Abraham uh, and his two sons to the two options that we each confront our old selves, whether it be under the law of Moses or whatever religious tradition we come from, and our new selves and our full potential under the new covenant, under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we are familiar with 
the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, of course, was the one that was brought uh, to the mount and was going to be sacrificed as a similitude of Jesus Christ to help each of us better understand what the Father went through as he was preparing to, sac- to, to, to sacrifice, to give of his son to provide salvation to everyone. But we're less familiar with Abraham's oldest son. Isaac was not his only son. Isaac was his second son. His oldest son was Ishmael. Ishmael was born of uh, Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid. You'll recall that, Hera, that, that Sarah, for years, was not able to bear children. And so that Abraham would have, uh, would have a son, he gave, she gave Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, and she, uh, she brought forth, she, she, she had a son uh, named Ishmael. And, and, and then later, uh, miraculously, Sarah, in her old age, she conceived, and, and, and she brought forth Isaac. And so Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, who was the son of a handmaid, the son of a servant, and Isaac, the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah. I, Ishmael, though, when he was uh, probably in his teens, he was kicked out of Abraham's house. Uh, the story is that he was... He did something, it appears he was, he was mocking Isaac, or the two of them got into a fight or something when Isaac was, was, only, uh, was only probably a toddler. He was probably three, and Ishmael was a teenager. Um, but Ishmael did something that made Sarah so mad that she made Abraham kick out Ishmael and Hagar from the household. And so, if you can see here, Isaac is a similitude of Christ because he was the only begotten of Sarah, and Abraham was commanded to sacrifice him. So Isaac is a similitude of Christ, but Ishmael, who transgressed, and because of his transgression, had to leave the presence of his father. Ishmael is symbolic of us. Ishmael represents each of us. And so, in this story, uh, Paul uses this story to teach how we have to put away ourselves. We have to give up the Ishmael side of us, our previous selves, that part of us that was cast out from the presence of the Father because of our mistakes. We have to put away that side and embrace the Isaac side, Isaac being he who symbolizes Jesus Christ chapter 4 verses 30 uh, and 31 nevertheless what saith the scripture cast out the bondwoman and her son this is ishmael and his mother for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman so then brethren we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free So in this story, again, Ishmael represents each of us. And Paul is saying, we have to cast out Ishmael from our lives. We have to cast out those parts of our lives that are wrong, that would make us unworthy to be in the Father's presence. And instead of embracing those parts of our lives, those worldly parts of our lives that are not right and are not penitent, instead we embrace we embrace the Isaac side. And Isaac, of course, is being a similitude of Jesus Christ, 
leads to the conclusion, we have to embrace Christ. We put away the fallen man, he who is cast out of God's presence. We put away the fallen man and embrace fully Jesus Christ, letting him take control of our lives. In verse 1 of chapter 5 now, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So bondage here has so many meanings. It is the bondage, it is the confines of our mother's womb, as Paul compared it to himself before he accepted the, accepted the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was living under the law of Moses. Bondage meaning uh, the children of the bondswoman, Ishmael, the fallen man, the, all, whatever our religious traditions are, wherever we came from, whatever we were before we accepted Jesus Christ, we put that aside, fully embracing the gospel and standing fast in the liberty uh, wherewith Christ hath made us free. What a wonderful statement that is. And we've talked about the liberty of the children of Christ before. We've talked about how it is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are no longer kept under the confines of the law of Moses or wherever it is that we came from. We have the liberty of Christ knowing that we will be saved in Christ, knowing that our salvation lies not in keeping every tenant of the law, but rather our salvation comes knowing that because of Jesus Christ, because of his grace, because of his mercy and his love for us, that we can return to the Father. Chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but to love, serve one another. But by love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So as we know that we are free because of Christ, because we know that we no longer have to keep every tenant of the law of Moses or whatever it, philosophy it is that we have historically come from, and that would even apply, I would say, to those within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that believe that salvation is something that we have to work out ourselves and it only comes as we do our ministering every month and go to the temple every month and pay a generous fast offering and tithing and uh, you do food storage and all and, and attend mutual every week and all of the and attend all of our meetings, all of the checklists that often we wear ourselves ragged with. Those are no different from the law of Moses in many ways. We believe that salvation comes from whether it be a list of law under of laws under the law of Moses, or whether it be the checklist that that we give ourselves to convince ourselves that if we do everything on the list, that we are righteous and that we will be saved. What Paul is telling us here is, put away your lists, put away your traditions, put away whatever it was that you originally believed brought about salvation because salvation comes in Christ it comes through his grace and his mercy and when we are no longer focused on our checklists we all of a sudden have the freedom to love other people we no longer have to live up to any pretenses to any expectations of others or expectations of ourselves 
And we then have the freedom necessary to truly love and to truly serve other people. And this beautifully solves the philosophical or even yourself be concerned about that, you know, if I'm doing good simply to be saved, am I really doing good? The question is often expressed, is it even possible to do good? Because if you're doing good for some benefit, are you really doing good? And Paul's solution is, yes, Christ makes it possible for us to do good. And only Christ makes it possible for us to do good. Because we're not doing good because doing good saves us. It's Jesus Christ who saves us. Doing good and keeping all the commandments, whether it be the law of Moses or the the Mormon checklist that we put together, there's no salvation in that. Christ saves us. And so because we don't have to worry about these checklists, we have the freedom to worry about other people, to truly love other people, to truly do good. And so because of that, we don't have to worry about ourselves, but we can love other people. And that love will, of course, be a manifestation of Christ, of Christ being in us, of Christ having taken over our lives, of us having turned ourselves over to Christ. We will be changed and we will do good. But again, we're not doing it because it's on a checklist. We're doing it because we've changed and because Christ has taken over our lives and given us the freedom to truly do good. And what will the results of that be? Verses 16 and 18, as Paul contrasts here um, what it means to walk after the manner of flesh and to walk after the Spirit. uh, He says 16 through 18, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So again, it's this idea that if we are led by the Spirit, if Christ is in us, if we have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't dogmatically adhere to any lists or any, any, any rules or any other confining uh, tenets or philosophies, but rather we have freedom. We have the freedom to do what we want to do. And what we will want to do is to love others, to do righteousness, and to become like Jesus Christ and treat others in the way that he would have us treat them. We will do good not because it not because we desire to check off all the, all of the all of the things on our to-do list we do good because we are good because Christ is in us and we have let him take over our lives and the fruits of that will be manifest in the spirit verses 22 through 23 but the fruit of the spirit in other words the things that will abound within us as we let Christ take over our life is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Now, each of these are attributes that perfectly describe our Savior. 
And as Paul says at the end, against such there is no law. The law doesn't tell us to have these things. The law tells us what we cannot do. The law, that long checklist of things that we have to do, these things are not there. These things are the results of someone who has given their life to Christ. These are the fruits of that type of a life. This is what naturally results as we let Christ take over our lives. We become like him. We love others as he loves them. We serve others as he served them. Against such there is no law. The law cannot prescribe these things. This is not something that you can force. You can't wake up every morning and say, okay, I'm going to have love now. Now I'm going to have joy. Now I'm going to have peace. These are not things that can be forced. These are things that have to come about naturally. Just as you can't force the faith of seed, you cannot force gentleness or goodness or peace or joy or meekness or temperance. These are things that come naturally to those that follow Jesus Christ and that allow him to take over their lives. Chapter 6, and we'll end verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. What a wonderful way to conclude. God cannot be deceived. Those attributes of the Spirit which naturally come about as we let Christ take over our lives, those cannot be fabricated. Those cannot be made up. Those cannot be forced. Those come about naturally. If you're not a good person, you can't just force yourself to be a good person. God can't be fooled. God can't be mocked. You can't lie your way to the blessings of the temple. You might lie your way past the temple recommend interview, but once you get to the temple, its ordinances will not change you. They will not have an impact on you. They will not lead you to become the best that you can become. They will not bring you closer to God because you should never have been there in the first place because you weren't ready, because that is not who you are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a checklist of things we have to do. It's a process where we become what we have to become. And that can only happen as we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ, as we accept him, as we embrace him fully, as we put away our previous traditions and our philosophies and our checklists. Only then can we truly embrace and become what God would have us become then because we sow whatever we reap. And if, it, and if we soweth to the Spirit, we shall, as, we shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. If we let Christ take over, if the Spirit changes us, if Christ changes us through the Holy Ghost and its impact on us every life, the result will be eternal life. We will return to the presence of our Father, and we will be there because we will be like him, because Christ will have taken over our lives, and he will have changed us, and we will be comfortable in the Father's presence. 
It's my belief that when we get up to heaven, we will very naturally know what kingdom we belong to. If we have become like Christ and become like the Father because we've allowed Christ to be in us and to change us, we will be most comfortable in the celestial kingdom, in God's presence, and that is where we will want to be, and that is where we will be. But if we've tried to deceive God, if we haven't thought much of God and we haven't been changed through Christ, then we will be horribly uncomfortable in God's presence. That is the absolute last place we will want to be because we will not be like him and we will be very, feel very awkward and very uncomfortable there. So I hope that we will all turn our lives over to Christ. Let him work within us. Let him change us that we will enjoy the freedom that comes as we put away our traditions, as we put away our checklists, and we let Christ take over our lives, and we become what Christ wants us to become. We let him mold us and craft us and create us so that we reach our full potential, and that potential is the presence of God and being like him. And I hope that we'll do so, and I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.